This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelts. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Today is Monday, September 18th. Thank you for joining us today. I'm very excited to have our new co-host who will be doing the Russia-Ukraine War Report update, the breadth coverage for our podcast. And with that, let me introduce you to Marina Yevshan. Marina, I am so happy to have you join the team. Hello, David, and greetings to all listeners. I'm really happy to be here too. And uh, I must say that's an honor to me. I'm almost at a lost words here. I know that I'm excited. I know our audience is very excited to have this part of our coverage return. We've continued the situation reports. We have Zanina, who is doing our in-depth coverage now and has done interviews with people like uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. And you're going to be doing the situation reports six days a week. To me, that's also very exciting news. And that's something that I've never done before. So it sounds challenging, but I promise I'll try to do my best. (laughs) Marita, let's talk a little bit about your background. You are born and raised in Ukraine, and you have an amazing and in some ways a terrifying backstory. Oh, well, you're right. I was born and raised in Donetsk, which is now occupied, the city in the east of Ukraine. I went to school there and my family lived there. And later, when I entered the university, I studied in Kyiv, which is the capital city of Ukraine. So all my life is connected with Ukraine. In 2013, I got married with my future lane in front of me with all the most positive prospects, but I didn't have a chance to fulfill it in real life because in 2014 the war started and uh, my husband and I were forced to leave our native city Donetsk. Uh, We became homeless. We started our lives together from the scratch uh, in different places. We had to travel in Ukraine and to find place to live. But up until now, I can say that there is no place as Donetsk. (laughs) That's my favorite city still. I know it's in devastated state now. I remember it how it used to be, and that's the best city in the world. Later, we ended up in Kyiv region, and in 2022... Let's talk a little bit about your experience in 2014. A lot of our listeners have not had the experience of waking up in the morning, and you're at war. Not only you're at war, but you have a combatant, a belligerent, going... Hey, it's not us. You're looking out the window and going, it is you. I, I I, see you right there. Well, first of all, you mentioned that it was like uh, waking up in the morning and noticing some stuff. For us, it wasn't like waking up and yesterday it was something and the next day something else. It was more like a process. The interesting situation about Donetsk region, this land is multinational. A lot of nationalities there. 
fact is more than 100 nationalities and we are very tolerant to each other. And at that time, when a lot of people tried to show their pro-Russian position, we didn't think that it was dangerous at that time. We thought it was just people who tried to show their position and uh, nothing more. Actually, it was dangerous. Actually, it grew into something more later. At that time, we thought that it's something temporary. We attended rallies in the city, which showed that pro-Ukrainian position exists too. Uh, we tried to make us visible, but we were very surprised to find out that the news presented it in a very wicked way way. They showed as if people from Western Ukraine came to Donetsk and they showed their pro-Ukrainian position. But we understood that it was lie because we were there, we people from Donetsk, we who were born and, born and raised there, and that was devastating to read such news. And the main stance came from Russia, who said that we are not there, we don't interfere into your business, it's just your local problem. You don't want to deal with uh, so-called separatists. And of course, that was not true. Day after day, gradually, it became impossible for us to stay. It was too dangerous for people with pro-Ukrainian position. We had to go. We thought that we will be out of the city for a couple of weeks and later will return. But those couple of weeks turned into almost a decade now. You had to hit the reset button on your life. You went to the Kiev area and you ended up in... Hostomel. It's a small town in Kiev region, uh, 10 kilometers from Kiev. This city became famous or probably infamous is, is a better word for... <laughs> our listeners. It became famous because the full-scale invasion started from us. We woke up on the 24th of February from the sound of explosions. Uh, later that day, we heard helicopters were flying above our heads, how planes were flying above our heads. We heard artillery working. And that's how we knew that war became something different now. It wasn't just a part of Eastern Ukraine, but it was whole Ukraine now. Everybody thought that it would be insane, but still, who's, who's speaking about sanity here, talking about Vladimir Putin? That's why we knew that something bad was going to happen. We just didn't know the date, the particular date. And we knew that uh, Putin is crazy about nice, beautiful dates. Georgia was invaded and the date was very beautiful, 888. We thought that probably in our case, that would be the 22nd of February. 22, 2, 22. Five twos, yes, five twos in a row. It would be put in style. But the 22nd wasn't the day, and the 24th is the day when everything started. And for us, it was the point of ex exhaustion. We already knew that the war is coming. When going to bed on the 23rd, we were thinking, when? When? Is it, is it tomorrow? Is it today? We were not surprised when we woke up. It was like, oh, at last. I can't say that it was a relief or some kind of, of thing. It was just understanding that we were right. It actually happened. You're at your home. You're hearing helicopters, airplanes, artillery, explosions. CNN had a reporter at the airbase. Their fixer is, hey, we hear there's Russian. Take me there. And they're there. And they end up on the Russian side. They're with the Russians. You know, we're looking for the, we are the Russians. You're the Russians? And then they drove to the other side of the base and they were with the Ukrainians. And this was wild to watch unfold. 
but this isn't wild for you at all. This is terrible for you. I think you're right. It has to be terrible for us, but you're not a stranger to psychology. And you understand that in some dire situations, uh, our assessment changes. When you are in such a wild situation, you have different options, which are to panic or calm down and not to take in all the emotions. You try to analyze what's going on and you suddenly sunk into a mode of thinking about what to do next in the next hour. You don't think too further away. Did your experience in Donetsk help you form how you should respond on February 24th? The fact is, the, the fun fact, fun isn't the word, but still, our neighbors were in a state of panic. And we, as people from Donetsk, we understood what was going on. Because for us, this war started in 2014, and we knew it, and we followed the news. We were not in the epicenter of events. We cared deeply. That's why we knew it. We followed everything. But still, that was some new experience, totally. What did you ultimately do? We spent the day uh, in Hostomel. And in the evening, we heard the news that airbase was going to be cleansed by Ukrainian forces. And we estimated that if Ukrainian troops are there and airbase is here, and we are like in between, so we decided that it wouldn't be a good idea to spend the night here and to, to, to check if we are lucky enough not to be shot. That's why we decided to go and spend the night in Kyiv where our friends and relatives live. And that's how we left. Were you in this place like with Donetsk? Hey, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We hoped to be back next morning. Wow. And wow. Uh, we, we spent the night in Kyiv, and uh, during the night we saw that already Russian troops were on land, not just helicopters and planes on the airbase, but actual troops with tanks, uh, with other heavy vehicles, they were marching towards our city. That's why we decided that we need to go back to our house and to pick up some valuables, some things, and to flee again. So, Marina, uh, wait a minute. You went back? Yes, yes, we went back. And I'm eternally grateful to that Ukrainian soldier who stopped our car on a checkpoint. And he told us not to proceed. It was too dangerous. He told us that the bridge was uh, exploded by that time. And there was a tank battle in our city. Later, uh, we discovered that Russian troops were shooting civilians at the same roundabout next to our house. If not for that soldier's advice, probably not advice, even an order, we would be on that roundabout at that very moment, and our car would be shot, and I wouldn't be speaking to you today. I am certainly glad that you are speaking with me and our audiences hearing this today. You don't get to go back. It was too dangerous to travel west. If you go from Kyiv, there are two major roads that you can use, Zhytomyr Road and Odessa Road. And we decided to go south to use Odessa Road. And that's how we, how we traveled that day, without any prospects, without any plans. We just tried to get away and to save our lives. Where did you where did you end up? We didn't make too far from Kyiv, and we have no place to go. And we tried different shelters, and everything was too busy with people. Uh, no place for us to stay. Our neighbors proposed to to go with them because they had relatives in one of small cities in Kyiv region. 
and we called them and we asked if it was still possible to join them. That's how we ended in a house of a beautiful, wonderful lady who was a complete stranger to us, and we spent three months in that house and became children to that lady. A month later, Russian troops are defeated. They are forced to withdraw. Were you able ever to go back to your house? Yes, after the occupation was ended, there was a quarantine time for a couple of weeks. We didn't know if our house was still there. We knew that there were heavy battles there. But then this video appeared, the video from Ukrainian drone. And the video showed our neighborhood and we could see that our house was still there. It's something of the of the happiest memories from that time. It was a huge relief to know that you, you still have your house and you have place to return. Because by that point, I already make peace with myself and I understood that my backpack is everything I have. And uh, with our house, of course, it was damaged. All the windows were broken, there were holes in the walls and the roof. Of course, it was heavily looted by the time. A lot of valuable things were gone. And uh, I, I don't want to become graphic here, but there were some proofs of Russians being in our house. Probably everybody who follows this news of this war, everybody knows what, what Russians leave after them. But still, we were very happy and we consider ourselves lucky because we survived and we had the place to come back. You're talking to me now from your house? Yes, that's right. This is an amazing story. I know our audiences, this is an amazing story. When do I when do I get my you're going to be getting your reports again. The first recording will be for the September 20th situation report, which means that recording drops on Thursday, September 21st. Monita, you're joining our team as a paid employee. This is your first time doing voice over work. Are you nervous? Of course I am. And I want to ask our listeners to be lenient in their judgment, especially for the first time, because it's something I've never done before. And of course, I'll try to do my best. But still, I may struggle with pronunciation of some words or in making a phrase or to holding my breath for so long to pronounce the whole sentence. I don't know what might happen on the way. Marina, by trade, you're a language teacher. This will be a journey for both of us. I will be helping you from time to time with some of your English, and you're going to help me maybe not murder Ukrainian as bad as I do. Well, I hope that wasn't that bad before. But still, I, I also hope to bring some new value into your podcast. And I hope that all Ukrainian names would be pronounced correctly from now on. Now, there's one other thing that I want to talk about. One of the things that we had learned last year, there are people who were listening to our podcast in the occupied territories, people who want the truth, to want to know what's going on. And as a team, we've had this very profound sense of we've got to get back on the air. We've got to get this going again because there are people that are counting on this information. The wall is raising up. It is getting harder and harder and harder for people to get that information. Yes, that's very important to bring information to people in occupied territories. And for me, it's it's not surprising that there are people who would like to know the truth and people who are still uh, tuning to such kind of news. And there is uh, a Russian stance uh, 
supported by some not very clever people that people in occupied territories are almost pro-Russian and there is no hope left and we should forget about them. That's not true. I myself, being a refugee, pro-Ukrainian people are still there and we need to fight for them too. We are fighting for our freedom and we are fighting for our Ukraine. It should be whole again. We should go to the borders of the 1991 and we should protect our people. And that's my dream, to come home to my native town and to live my life and not to be associated with war. I don't want Ukrainians' image to be framed by war. I want whole world to know that Ukrainians are more than just a state in resistance. I want you to know that we are wonderful people, hospitable, clever, artistic, and I want everybody to visit Ukraine. Not now, because it, now it might be dangerous, but after our victory. And to know for yourself that people, including people in occupied territories, are very wonderful people. They are resilient, they are strong, they are powerful, and they want to be in Ukraine again. And something that we're going to be able to introduce to the podcast is from time to time, you will do some reads that will be in Ukrainian. I'd be happy to, to make more and more people comfortable with listening to this podcast and feeling like you are important, you are not forgotten, and you're here with us. Why don't we do uh, something right here, right now? By the way, this is an organic interview. There's nothing scripted here. Could you let the world know that Klishvika has been liberated? <laughs> yes, of course I can do that. Дорогі українці, особливо українці на окупованих територіях, нещодавно з'явилися новини, що Кліщіївка була звільнена. Я сподіваюся, що скоро ми почуємо ще більше новин про ще більше міст, містечок, сел, які будуть звільнені і які знову будуть під прапором України. Я сподіваюся, що це буде правда для всіх територій України. Сподіваюся, що ми всі зможемо святкувати нашу перемогу дуже скоро. Слава Україні! Героям слава! Маріна, I am so excited to have you here. This has been an amazing interview. I've learned so much about your experience. I've learned more about Ukraine. I've learned more about what people were thinking and feeling on February 23rd and February 24th. I'm so excited to have you do your first read, technically on the 20th, published on the 21st. <laughs> yes, thank you for the interview too. I'm really excited to be here. And that's a big responsibility to me too. When I was thinking about this interview, I thought, what makes me stressed and it's it's not speaking english it's not being on air but responsibility that now i'm going to be a part of something which contributes to the fight and the work that i'm going to do may influence our victory and may bring it forward <laughs> um wow i could speak for the entire team really excited to have you join this fight, this fight to provide the truth, because the truth matters. And now I'm going to turn the show over to our co-host and executive producer, Zarina Zabriski, who has her regular Monday coverage. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. 
You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. I'm making this podcast from Mykolaiv, an important strategic city in southern Ukraine. The city is also a major shipbuilding center of Ukraine. Russians shelled the city daily at the start of the invasion in 2022. They tried but failed to capture Mykolaiv. The city has survived nearly a year without drinking water and with salty water so-called technical water, coming out of the taps. Today, it is really moving to see Mykolaiv coming back to life despite occasional Russian attacks. The water is wonderfully unsalty and Mykolaiv residents are rebuilding the destroyed houses. Tomorrow, I will be in Kherson and the next podcast will bring you more stories from the south of Ukraine. Today, we present a documentary film under deadly skies, also known as Eastern Front, Torture and Terror in Ukraine. The documentary war film directed by Byline TV filmmaker Kaylin Robertson and featuring UK veteran war correspondent John Sweeney and war photographer Paul Conroy and yours truly, U.S. author turned journalist Zarina Zabrisky. We travel to hot spots in Donbass and Kherson investigating Russian war crimes. We will speak to the director, Kaylin Robertson, and George Lewelin, the editor of the documentary war film Eastern Front, Torture and Terror in Ukraine. Here with Kaylin Robertson, uh, the director of the documentary film, an award-winning documentary film, Under Deadly Skies, also known as Eastern Front, Terror and Torture in Ukraine. Kaylin is a director. Kaylin, could you please share with us what brought you to Ukraine and why you decided to make this film? I've always been really interested in what's actually happening in Ukraine especially in the last six months, there's been so much disinformation, social media, Kremlin propaganda that's breaking through into right-wing networks, and a lot of the time even into left-wing networks. And it seems to be in the state where no one in the West really knows exactly what's going on. And there's just so much propaganda coming out. And I wanted to see for myself exactly what was going on on the ground. I only came here for five days so I could do a film with John Sweeney about it and looking at the propaganda and ended up being completely compelled further and further east towards Kramatorsk, the Eastern Front. Um, as I heard so many horrendous stories from the war, from the front line, the way that people were living every day, the way that they were bombarding the villages all day, every day, the way that there are war crimes happening. And, and I ended up staying those five days turned into five weeks. Uh, and it took us all the way down to the south of Ukraine as well, to Kherson, 
where the Russians are just on the other side of the river. And what we found was, you know, use firsthand of white phosphorus, a war crime against the Geneva Convention, torture against civilians, people that had no military involvement during the Russian occupation. And I was unbelievably shocked. I even myself as a journalist should be knowing that this stuff is happening and had to physically go to Ukraine to see it, to, to understand. And I think it's a failure of our media in a lots of ways. Obviously, it's showing how much propaganda is working, but it was really profound. And uh, that's basically what, what brought me to Ukraine the, that time and what's brought me back again. Thank you. And you have mentioned the Kremlin propagandists. We also should, the American and European and also British channels and amplifiers of the Kremlin propaganda. So there's uh, major networks in America, networks like Fox, huge TV hosts, same in Britain, mainstream television, that propagate Kremlin lies, that downplay the war, Some of them aren't on the payroll. Some of them just do it to be edgy and think it's interesting to go against the mainstream, which is pro-Ukraine. But they're all making money off it. Disgraceful, because what's happening here is uh, war crime every day. It's absolutely horrendous. It's an innocent country that was doing nothing wrong. And suddenly a bunch of totalitarian oligarchs at the top of the Russian government have decided to illegally invade it. And there isn't two points to this when it comes to propaganda. There isn't, oh, is it Ukraine's fault? Oh, is it Russia? What about the Russian side? It's become very liberal circles, think they're very intelligent now, talking about two sides to this. Well, actually, what? how long is this going to go on for? Maybe we, maybe we should have peace deals. People that think they're smarter than, uh, than the people running Ukraine. And that's all just because of a failure in media. I mean, peace talks are not possible because Russia will continue to do this. They did this with Crimea in 2014. They'll probably say, oh, okay, yeah, we'll just stop at the Donbass and we'll just stop in Kherson and then we'll do a peace deal. And in five years, all this will happen again. And before you know it, they'll be against uh, borders. So there's a huge amount of, of just nonsense going around. Um, but filmmaking is really important. If I can contribute films that wake a lot of people up to this, and I invited right-wingers, centrists, people that read The Daily Mail, people that read The Guardian, a whole mix of people to the premiere when this came out in Leicester Square, and a lot of them came out really surprised, which was at least a bit of a difference. I've heard it from the far left in California, and I definitely heard it from far right. The peace negotiation narrative is particularly dangerous right now because, as you said, Kaylin, is just the way to win some time and regroup in order to attack again. How do you see it looking back? Would there be something that you did different? Yeah, the response to this film has been completely unbelievable. It's given me a lot more hope for people actually being interested in seeing the truth. Um, again, when I first came here, it was to find out myself what was going on and do a short film with John. Didn't plan on making a feature-length film like this, never mind premiering it in America and Britain and, and Ukraine, never mind it winning 12 awards. None of that was on the, on the plan, and that's what happened. And it's amazing because it's a film that tells the story in a truthful and proper way on the right side, which is on the Ukrainian side. If I could do things differently, all I would do is to spend more time here. Every day I was here, there was another story of the war that was heartbreaking that I wish the world knew about and want to tell the world, world about. But um, I had to come back and I had to edit it uh, together. But I would just make it longer, I think, and I would, I would do a lot more, which is what the plan is going to be, to tell as much 
to the world as possible about what's going on here and what we found. But I'm very proud of the film. Basically, everything that you see in the film is like created by Zarina, whether she found them through journalism or helped convince them to come on camera and did all of the all of the serious structures of it. Everything you see is basically what Zarina's done. So it's just it's absolutely amazing. Well, I, thank you. I'm very moved by you saying that film had any relation to film industry. No, it's a teamwork. And we were very lucky to have our team, obviously with you in the lead and also John Sweeney. It just really came together and the knowledge that John and Paul brought and the edgy filming that you brought will did together and I was happy to contribute my linguistic knowledge, my knowledge of the area and my connection to Ukraine. So we were just lucky to have this team together. How do you see yourself uh, in the foreseeable future? I'm always going to make films, always going to make documentaries. I've just finished one about Brexit in Britain, but I see it in the east for now, in the east of Europe, in Ukraine, making films about what's happening here. Short films, documentaries, uh, news reports, whatever is possible. But I um, absolutely won't stop doing this until I suppose the war is finished. And then there's countless films about how does a country rebuild after it's been invaded like this and treated like this? How much is it going to cost the cities like Bakhmut? It's actually almost easier and cheaper to build a new city next to it because of all the infrastructure that needs to be repaired. How is that going to work? How is it going to recover? I believe in Ukraine massively and the people here are amazing. Their spirit is incredible. So I know that they'll do it. But there are so many films even about recovery post-war in the 21st century. So I think I'll be here for a long time. I'm here with my colleague, George Llewellyn. George wasn't here with the rest of the crew filming on site, but George did the most important task of editing the material that we brought back in his London studio. So, George, now you are in Ukraine with us. Tell us a little bit about your journey, what brings you here, and we'll start here. It's quite bizarre being here now, having edited that film you know I would have loved to have come out in the first place I would have loved to come out kind of at the beginning of the full-scale invasion but I had so much work going on in London there was so much going on with kind of Westminster corruption and all of these things so I had to stay behind while Kaylin came out to to make this film and I remember him coming back with this footage he'd you know he'd talk to me daily as it was kind of being made I was a little bit involved in the production from the kind of London end. When he brought this footage back, it was just absolutely incredible to me hearing these stories that people had, seeing some of the things that were unfolding in the footage. And it just gave this completely different perspective to what I was seeing in the news. The stories were very similar, I guess, but there was just this depth that you don't get with the news. And that's kind of the thing that that really struck me it is the depth it is the human side of things it's not just the kind of nightly news flash of this is happening these tanks moved here this thing was blown up it's actually what happens to the people who are on the other end of that and that was amazing it was incredibly intimidating to have just this huge pile of footage from you went to the east to the south you kind of traversed a huge chunk of the front line 
making this film. And so, yeah, I kind of just had to get stuck into making making sense of it, making a story out of it. Here I have uh, many questions. And one of them, recently I've been reading about the mythological war versus the sensory war, the war that is actually happening here. And this is the gap that is very hard to overcome when you are writing about the war, when you're making podcasts about the war, slightly easier when you're making films about the war. And yet you are missing this visceral, like smells, the touch, those things that you can only experience if you are in person on, say, site of bombing. And now that you are here in Ukraine and you just went to Donbass and witnessed some more horrendous war crimes committed by the Russian Federation there, you've experienced it in full. What is the difference? And as a filmmaker, how do you think you overcome it? One of the things that I think has really struck me, you know, I've been here for a couple of weeks now, uh, intending to stay long term and get kind of more fully exposed to it all. But one of the things that really struck me was being intimately familiar with all of the, the footage in the film, the raw footage, the places where things are happening. And going around Kramatorsk this week, seeing all of the, you know, the sights of these scenes from this documentary that I edited, it was really bizarre to see something in three dimensions in context in a way that I hadn't with the footage. There are these minute differences that you maybe can't necessarily put your finger on how it feels different, but it feels more expansive. It feels more real. You can, you know, really get the sense. I think the film does a very good job of telling the story and getting across as much of the, the feelings of the people and the feelings of the environment in the scenes in the film. But you can never do that in the way that it feels to, you know, complete, you can never completely tell that story of what it feels to be in a location, to be at, you know, a gas station where this thing happened. And, you know, even even things, we were looking for the site of the, the missile attack on Kramatorsk that killed, I think it was 17 people now. One of the things that really struck me was hearing the, the explosions in the distance and in the film, you know, you have the audio track of, of people talking and you have everything at a certain level. And then you have the kind of secondary distant noises underneath that, the explosions in the distance. But there's no real, unless something's incredibly close, there's no real way in that footage to give you that sense of where things are or the direction things are coming from. And, and being in Kramatorsk, going down the road to that, that market, the pharmacy that was hit, you're hearing the explosions, but you're hearing some are further away, some are closer, some are to the right of you, some are to the left of you. And the, I think these are the things that you really pick up on actually being here, you know, that sense of this 360 experience. Film is very two dimensional and you're not really getting that sense physically, emotionally, viscerally in your body of what it's like to be surrounded 
by these sounds, by this experience. And yet, even with this two-dimensionality, the film is quite traumatic. And yeah. we've been talking about that to the Ukrainian journalists who've watched the film and interviewed us in the course of this week. And many were concerned about the Ukrainians in Odessa watching the film being re-traumatized. I know that several people from Mariupol were coming to the premiere today. And I do feel concerned about re-traumatizing people. How do you feel about it? And also along these lines, how did you choose the materials when you edited? And where is the line between sensational and graphic and something that works and is honest and yet dreadful? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a really tough line to draw. It's a really tough distinction. I went through lots of versions of scenes where I would edit to what I thought was probably the line, watch it back, get feedback on it, get a feel for it in context, pull it back a little bit. The thing is, war is traumatic, right? What these people are experiencing is traumatic. The soldiers, the villagers, journalists. One of the things that's great about this film is Kaylin filming it had and directing it had no experience of being in a war zone before. So you don't get that kind of cold nonchalance to those sounds that a lot of kind of experienced war reporters you see on TV have. So that is kind of visceral, that becomes part of the narrative. Including all of these different bits together, the trauma that, that everybody involved in this war, in, in fighting off this invasion, you have to communicate that. And, and that is going to be traumatic because you're communicating about something traumatic. It is, it is a very hard line to find. The first screening that we did of the film was at the Frontline Club in London. It was a slightly longer version of the film, and it was the first time I'd really watched it with a room full of people, and I, I stood at the back watching everybody consume this film. And I got to the end of it and I thought, no, this is this is too much. It's It was too unrelenting. It felt like a very truthful interpretation of what was going on but I could see the audience were legitimately traumatized and you know a lot of these people were ordinary journalists in London who also themselves don't do a lot of war reporting or anything like that and so I did actually have to pull it back a little bit that was part of including you know the woman at the end who's in Siversk who's finding the flowers and sort of trying to end on as much of a positive note as there is so it was really hard to strike that balance. I think you did yesterday, the anchor uh, interviewing us and asked a good question about the music because it's oppressive mm. and it's hard, but then it changes to the lyrical and it does bring hope. Yeah, I mean, everybody that I've spoken to, kind of Ukrainian or otherwise, there's a sort of interesting pessimism, but a temporary pessimism. It's, you know, nobody's saying, oh, we're not gonna win. Oh, this is not gonna happen. It's this, it's not happening as, as fast as we would like, or it's not happening yet. But there's never that question of whether it will happen. It's Ukraine will effectively win this war. There, there, is, there is no end point to that, basically, except for, except for winning. But I'm looking forward to kind of being here, working on more films and, and kind of seeing what happens next, what the continuation of Under Deadly Skies is what it looks like, where things are going to go, how everything's going to unfold. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your dedication and thank you for being here. 
and uh, we will talk to you soon. Yeah, definitely. Thank Thank you. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.